like to ask you to please turn with me to our text for this morning, which is Psalm 127. Psalm 127, and we're continuing our sermon series looking at the Psalms of Ascent, uh, Psalms 120 through 134, and we're smack dab in the middle of those. Hopefully you don't uh, have psalm fatigue at this point. I think I'm just going to keep preaching the Psalms forever. Um, No, not really, but at the very least this morning. Psalm 127, and this is what the psalmist writes for God's people back then as well as for us as God's people today. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, Offspring, a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, uh, Sarah recently told me she wanted to reposition the rug in our living room. Uh, now it's, it's a big rug, and there's a rug pad underneath it as well. So repositioning it in such a way that it sits just right and doesn't show any of that rug pad is actually a pretty complicated job. Uh, Sarah said that she actually tried to do it one day while I was at work, and she couldn't do it. Uh, no matter how much she tugged and pulled on it and, and whichever way she moved it, there was always some part of that rug pad that kept showing. We've got to do it together some evening, she said. I can't do it on my own. It won't work. And so not long ago, that's what we did. Uh, After the boys were down in bed, uh, we moved all the furniture, got down on our hands and knees, and started tugging the rug around in different ways, and judging by the 15 minutes or so it took us to get it just right, uh, it really was a two-person job. It wasn't something we could do on our own. At least in the Han household, it turns out that repositioning a rug takes two people, at least. Well, so do our other jobs, at least according to the psalmist here. Just like repositioning our rug required both Sarah and I to work on it, so, says the psalmist in this psalm, our other work requires two people as well. Only this time, instead of our usual co-workers, you know, us and a spouse, or us and a friend, or us and a fellow employee, the psalmist says that it's actually God who needs to partner with us on our work together. Now I'll just say that Christians uh, have kind of a long and complicated relationship with scripture when it comes to this topic, the topic of work. And over the years, there's been a lot of misinterpretation and misapplication of scripture when it comes to how we ought to view and understand our work as Christian believers. Uh, For example, there are some who who see work as kind of a necessary evil. Uh, It's something we have to do, something we have to get through, something we have to tolerate or endure but not really something that maybe God intended or designed for us as human beings. They point back to Genesis 3 and the curses that God pronounces on Adam and Eve after their fall into sin, specifically the one directed at Adam in verses 17 through 19, which says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field 
By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, to be honest, uh, that sounds more to me kind of like a curse for vegetarians or vegans uh, than a curse about work, right? You will eat the plants of the field. That was a terrible joke, um, (laughs) as evidenced by the fact that no one laughed. Um, But this is why some people say that work is bad, okay? If we'd never fallen into sin, they say, we wouldn't have to work. It's all just a result of the fall. And some even go so far as to say that eventually when Jesus comes back, that'll be the end of our work. We won't have to work anymore. What they're forgetting, though, is that work actually predates the fall in Scripture. And that's because in the chapter before Genesis 3, before our fall into sin, Genesis chapter 2, after God creates Adam, it says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And so it turns out that work actually isn't a result of the fall. Instead, it's actually a result of God's creation. And so like everything else that God created, it was originally good, beautiful, and right. The fact of the matter is that the fall, like everything else, it distorted our work. It made our work harder. It made it into toil. But it didn't make or lead to or create it in the first place because work was already a part of God's good, original, unfallen creation. That said... It doesn't take very long uh, in the biblical narrative for us to see work misused. We actually looked at this passage a few months ago in a previous, uh, previous sermon series, but already in Genesis chapter 11, we see an example of how we can go about our work in all the wrong ways. Uh, you see, the first part of that chapter, Genesis 11, tells the story of the Tower of Babel. And there are a lot of themes in that story. We looked at a number of those uh, when I preached on it uh, just a few months ago. Um, But one theme that we see there is an overconfidence or an overestimation, an overglorification, if you will, of, of human effort, human ingenuity, and human work. Come, let us build ourselves a city, say the people in that text, with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. And that right there is the problem. So that we may make a name for ourselves. It's all about them. It's all about these citizens of Babel. It's all about what they're doing, what they're planning, and what they're trying to accomplish and create. And so that's one of the pitfalls that the Bible warns us against when it comes to our work. It warns us against the temptation to overwork. It warns us against the temptation to find all our identity, meaning, value, and worth in our work, and then to make our work all about and only about ourselves. And yet, As much as the Bible warns into falling into the ditch on that side of the road, it actually also has a lot to say about falling into into the ditch on the other side of the road, too. For starters, the book of Proverbs has no shortage of advice about why you shouldn't be what it calls a sluggard. Proverbs 15, verse 19. The way of the sluggard is blocked with thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. Proverbs 19, verse 24, a sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He will not even raise it back to his mouth. Proverbs 20, verse 4, sluggards do not plow in season. So at harvest time, they look, 
but find nothing. And finally, Proverbs 21, verse 25, the craving of a sluggard will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. First of all, can we just all acknowledge that that's a great word, right? (laughs) Sluggard. I feel like I want to use it more often, but I don't think it'd go over very well if I do. You know, you walk up to someone and call them a sluggard, right? He'd probably get sluggard in response. See what I did there? It's a little pun, yeah. This is the kind of humor Sarah has to put up with all the time. The, The point there, and the Bible is clear on this all throughout, is that laziness gets you nowhere, Being a sluggard gets you nowhere. Just expecting things to happen for you, that the chips will fall the right way, that the boundary lines will land in pleasant places, it doesn't just happen, okay? You can't overwork for it, but you do need to do some work for it. Maybe the place where we see this most clearly is actually in the Apostle Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. For instance, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 11 through 12, Paul writes this. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Apparently, there were some in the Thessalonian church who didn't heed that advice, though, because in his his next letter to them, 2 Thessalonians, Paul makes the point even more strongly, and it's a little long, but I'm going to read through the whole thing. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 15 He writes, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked day and night, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive, and they are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Now I'll just say this passage clearly uh, isn't about those who can't work. Okay, I've actually heard some uh, cite this passage as, as justification for why we shouldn't help um, the poor or homeless people. And while it may be true that there are some people who find themselves in tough spots uh, simply because they're lazy, for every one of those, there are dozens who have instead encountered things in their lives that have made work difficult, if not impossible. And that's not what this passage is talking about. Instead, what Paul is talking about here is those who can work but simply choose not to. You know, they're the freeloaders, the loungers, and the loafers who simply sit around and and kind of mooch off of others. They're the water cooler club, the ones on a perpetual break, and the group project member who doesn't contribute anything to the project. You ever have someone like that in a group project back in school? I did. I remember vividly writing an entire partner research paper by myself my junior year of high school because my partner showed up the day that we were going to start writing and it was clear that he hadn't done a single bit of work and had nothing to contribute. And then he had the audacity to complain when we got a C. Okay? 
That's who Paul is calling out here. And that's the ditch on the other side of the road when it comes to this topic of work. If the ditch on the one side is overwork, over-effort, and overestimation of what we can accomplish by ourselves as human beings, then the ditch on the other side is underwork, laziness, slothfulness, being a sluggard. And so what the psalmist does here in Psalm 127 is he threads that needle, okay? He keeps us on the straight and narrow. He keeps us from falling off into the ditch of overwork on the one side or underwork on the other. And the way he does that is by reminding us that all of our work, whatever it may be, is something we actually need to see ourselves as doing with and for God. That's what the psalmist is getting at in the opening verses of this psalm. Just look with me at verses one and two again. In in verses one and two of Psalm 127, the psalmist writes, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. First, I'll just say that if God grants sleep to those he loves, then I must not be in his good graces. Because uh, as the parent of young children, I would love more of it, right? Um, what the psalmist is saying here, and it's actually kind of a simple point, is that without God, our work is more or less actually impossible. That's because it's a partnership. It's a co-labor with him, a collaboration. It's like Sarah and me working together on that rug in our living room to get it just right. It's a two-person job, all of it, no matter what kind of job we hold or what kind of work we do. It's something that we need to see ourselves in a very real sense as doing with God. After all, who gave you the gifts and talents that you use in your work? God did, right? He's the one who's made some of us talented with our hands, some of us talented with our minds, some of us talented with people or facts or numbers or the arts or words or technology or whatever else it is that we work with. He's the one who's given us the gifts and talents we possess and use in our work. And so when we take those gifts and talents and we put them to use in his world, we are in a very real sense working with him. And that's true, by the way, regardless of what kind of work you do. I mean, we've got a lot of different kinds of work represented here among us this morning, right? For instance, there's the work of a student, school work, that's work. There's the work of a parent at home in the house, the work of of the blue-collar laborer, the work of the white-collar office worker, the work of yard work, housework, cooking, cleaning, maintaining, and cultivating. In fact, much of our lives consists of one kind of work or another whether it's formal paid work or not. And the psalmist's point is that all of it, every bit of it, every area of work we engage in is something that we do with God, something we need to see ourselves in partnership with him on, something we need to realize that if we forget about him, we actually end up working in vain. And that's what the psalmist is trying to illustrate in the second half of this psalm. In verses three through five, he writes, children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. 
Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. Now we might wonder, what's that doing here? It seems like kind of a strange turn in the psalm. The psalmist goes from talking about our work being a partnership with God and in vain if we don't do it with him in verses one and two to talking about children and offspring in verses three through five and the blessing that comes from them. But what the psalmist is actually doing here is he's offering a practical example of what he's just talked about in verses one and two. He's offering an example of why our work needs the Lord. After all, who can make themselves have children, right? I understand that we have things like in vitro fertilization and stuff like that these days, but that didn't exist back when the psalmist was writing this psalm. Instead, if you wanted to have children back then, you had to trust. You had to trust God. You had to trust that he could do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And there was mystery involved in that process. There was reliance on him. And that's what the psalmist is saying about all the rest of our work as well. He's saying that there are some things, having children for instance, that no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we work at it, we can't accomplish on our own. We can't create Life. We can create the conditions for it, but we can't create life itself. That's a work of the Lord alone, a work we have to depend on him for, a work we have to do with him. This, by the way, just as a side note, is why the typical sermon on these verses about having lots of kids and if you don't, you're failing in your Christian calling is actually a total misunderstanding of the structure and design of this psalm here. If this psalm consisted just of verses three through five, that sermon would actually make a lot of sense, but it doesn't. And when you read this psalm as a whole, along with verses one and two, it's clear that's not the point the psalmist is trying to make. His point isn't to guilt us into having a bunch of kids, though it's fine if you do. Instead, his point is about work and how without God, our work is in vain. It's impossible. It doesn't work right without him. Like creating life, we can create the conditions for our work, but we can't make it flourish on our own. Instead, it depends on him. He has to be part of the process. Our work ultimately finds all its success and fulfillment in him. As commentator James Mays writes on this passage, The psalm is grounded in fundamental trust in the providence of God as the decisive factor in all of human life. Children are a heritage from the Lord as the land is a heritage given to Israel by the Lord. No projects are completed unless they are embedded in the larger purposes of God. The anxious toil of those who believe that all depends on them is in vain. Work should be an endeavor of trust, not anxiety or arrogance. Or as the Heidelberg Catechism prayerfully puts it in question and answer 125, what does the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer mean? Give us this day our daily bread means do take care of all our physical needs so that we come to know that you are the only source of everything good and that neither our work and worry nor your gifts can do us any good without your blessing. And so help us to give up our trust in creatures, I would add, even including ourselves, and trust in you alone. 
And that brings us to the gospel this morning. After all, that's where we see all of this most clearly expressed, right? You see, there's a, there's a part of the gospel message that requires no work from us. In fact, we couldn't contribute to it even if we wanted to. It's called justification. That's the technical theological term for the forgiveness Christ made possible for us. It's the atoning for our sin. It's the grace and gift of God that sets us right with him, forgives us of our rebellion against him, and declares us innocent of the guilt of our sins. And that's all him. It's all Christ. It's all God. It's all a work of of his grace that we simply receive. But the moment that happens, the moment we accept and receive that good news of what Christ has done for us, the moment we're justified and become God's people, the next part of our salvation kicks in. We call that part sanctification. And we do have a part to play in that. Put simply, once we receive that message of justification and salvation in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit enters our hearts. He begins a work of transformation in us, a work of renewal, a work of new life, and we do cooperate with God in that part. We do have something to do there. We do have a part to play. We do have work to do. And so the gospel itself actually illustrates kind of that narrow road of work with the ditches on either sides. On the one hand, there's the temptation to overwork and try to justify and save ourselves, and that's not something we're capable of. That would be, as the psalmist puts it, effort in vain. But on the other side, we can't say that we have no part to play in our salvation either. That we just sit back and let God handle the whole thing because we do have a part to play. We cooperate with the Holy Spirit to become the kind of people that God has called and sanctified us to be. And one of those areas is in our work. We partner with God, we co-labor with him, we work alongside him in all that we do. Remember that as you go about your work. Whether it's schoolwork, housework, yard work, blue-collar work, white-collar work, or any other kind of work, remember that you do your work with and for God as one of his people. Thanks be to him. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, unless you build the house, we labor in vain. Unless you watch over the city, we watch in vain. Unless you partner with us in all the many areas of our work and life, we do it in vain. Lord, help us to see ourselves as co-workers with you. Help us to live into that calling to be your co-workers in all the normal, everyday, ordinary areas of our work as well as the special areas of work that we try to accomplish for your kingdom. We pray this all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.